Hey, everybody, and welcome to Slate's Trump Care Tracker, where we guide you through the epic, confusing, bizarre process by which Republicans are trying to take away health care from millions and millions of Americans. My name is Jordan Weissman. I am Slate's economics and uh, policy correspondent. And I'm Jim Newell. I cover Congress for Slate. And today on the Trump Care Tracker, we're going to talk about Republican plans to possibly penalize people who don't hold on to their insurance and whether or not you could be blocked from buying coverage for six months at a time under a new idea they've come up with. We're also going to talk a little bit about whether they're going to make it possible for state officials to spend uh, their health care subsidy money on hookers and blow instead. Not my theory. There is a esteemed academic who has put this forth. But first, we're going to talk a little bit about the politics of what's going on right now, because there have been some interesting developments with conservatives coming out against this bill. Jim, let's talk a little bit about Dean Heller, who kind of like just went to town on this legislation on Friday. So Dean Heller, Republican senator from Nevada, he is the most endangered Republican senator in next year's cycle. He came out and gave a press conference with the Republican governor of Nevada, Brian Sandoval, where they just basically tore to pieces the bill. They talked about how with the Medicaid cuts, there'd be hundreds of millions of dollars, a shortfall in their budget that they have to figure out how to fill. They didn't have much good to say about the individual market side. Dean Heller said, anyone who tells you that this decreases premiums, that's a lie. Yeah, I think he called that the second biggest lie in politics. (laughs) Heller is one just because of his political circumstances. I thought that maybe he would get one of the two lifeboats and he wouldn't have to vote for this thing. And so I thought maybe he was coming out and claiming one of those spots early, but he really did trash the bill. So I can't imagine Mitch McConnell was very happy with him saying, one, I can't support it in its current form. He did leave some wiggle room. But then he basically tore apart the foundation of it, the Republican argument for it, that this would, you know, repeal Obamacare, lower prices for everyone, lower premiums. And I mean, he just took it apart. So that was a pretty big development. What was interesting about his argument was that it managed to combine both the liberal and conservative critiques of this bill into just one huge broadside. On the one hand, he talked about the many, many Nevadans who would be left uninsured if you cut back Medicaid. And in sort of his comments afterwards, while they were taking questions from reporters, they asked him, OK, what changes to the Medicaid side of this would would, would you accept? Like, what would make you feel OK? And without getting too deep into it, he, his response was basically something Republicans would never give. He said you could wind down the expansion, but then you'd have to increase funding for traditional Medicaid. It was some kind of counter offer that Mitch McConnell would <laughs> just like never, never embrace. Right. What this bill currently does is it winds down the expansion and then like blows up traditional Medicaid. So, yeah, yeah exactly. It leaves like an extra stick of dynamite behind. Right. Uh, that's one side of it. And then the other side, he came down and said, oh, and by the way, it doesn't reduce premiums at all, which is the entire conservative goal. It's the only conservative goal. So uh, it was a really nice synthesis of what everyone from every side of the political spectrum hates about this bill. Yeah. And he, he also said it would be very difficult for me to get to yes. So he has that wiggle room, yeah. but he's making it seem like this would require some sort of really substantial change, not just a tweak, you know, thrown his way to give him cover. I don't know. Maybe he'll sell for that eventually. But Heller is in this category I sort of think of now as the hard-ish no. Him and Rand Paul, right? Like that's pretty much it. I think – and I I would also put Mike Lee in that category because Mike Lee, he wrote – the the Republican senator from Utah. He's sort of a very quiet person. He doesn't get in front of microphones and just, you know, blast how his opinions nonstop. So sometimes he's a little underestimated. But he wrote a, a medium post over the weekend where he wrote, quote, 
Far short of repeal, the Senate bill keeps the Democrats' broken system intact, just with less spending on the poor to pay for corporate bailouts and tax cuts. A cynic might say the BCRA is less a Republican health care bill than a caricature of a Republican health care bill. His big ask now is he wants states to be able to opt out of all of Obamacare. So yeah. I, he also seems like a hardish no. So you have three right there. I think that Ron Johnson, uh, Republican senator from Wisconsin, and Ted Cruz, I think just because of their circumstances that they're probably a little easier to get on board. They don't want to you know, rock the ship too much. But then you also have to wait to see, will Susan Collins from Maine, you know, she says she's weighing on CBO and CBO is probably not going to be very good. Lisa Murkowski from Alaska. This bill is does nothing good whatsoever for Alaska. That's not true. They have they have one kickback for Alaska. Oh, they do have the kickback. I forgot about the kickback. That's true. I do think that's how you get Murkowski's vote is you do whatever you want and then just say none of this applies to Alaska. I think so. There's almost a principled argument for that, which is that Alaska, when it comes to healthcare markets, really is just not like anywhere else in the country. It's not totally craven to do that. It's just mostly craven. It seems like you have this emerging block of hard nose led by Heller, who, of course, you know, he his motivation here is partly that he's in a state that Hillary won, but also that his governor, Brian Sandoval, is just very, very much against this bill. And he said he will not support it unless Sandoval signs on, too. I feel like there has to be some like intra Nevada politics. Yeah, politics I think it's that on. Sandoval is very popular and Heller is, you know, latching onto him in his desperate bid to win reelection. So like in the Capitol, if you ask Dean Heller something, like, what do you think about this? And he's like, well, I'll have to run it by the governor. So yeah, he really does take his orders. Do you think that the bill's prospects are dimming at all? I think they're a little dimmer. There's a lot of kabuki out there where people are coming out pretty hard against it. And maybe they're saying they want X, Y, and Z, but they'll settle for X. Like, I think you could bring a lot of the conservatives on board if you gave them a more uh, explicit community rating waiver. The moderates, if you maybe pare back the long-term growth rate in Medicaid and increase that a little bit. I think that maybe you could get some more moderates on board. So, I mean, there could be a compromise like that, but it's pretty difficult, and especially since they're trying to do this all in, you know, two days. Yeah. I, every time I think about the fact that they're going to be voting on that this week, I just want to go back to that Lamar Alexander quote from like the very beginning of his process where he's like, there shall be no false deadlines in the Senate. Yeah. We will deliberate as carefully as we, you know, the greatest deliberative body in the world will take its time. And Mitch McConnell's just like, hell no. Yeah. He's like, can we just get this over with, please? So I want to talk a little bit about waivers. One of the big conservative asks from any kind of repeal legislation is that states be able to waive Obamacare's insurance market regulations. So right now, Obamacare requires that insurers cover certain essential health benefits like maternity care or prescription drugs, et cetera. And conservatives want states to be able to opt out of that. What the Senate bill does is it clears out all the requirements to get one of these waivers. You don't have to show that your system will insure as many people. You don't have to show that the coverage will be just as comprehensive. You basically have to say it won't increase the federal deficit, but I'm actually, I don't even think you really have to demonstrate that much. They've given them a pretty free hand. What's fascinating about this, and this is something that Nicholas Bagley, a law professor at, at University of Michigan, wrote about recently, is that there really isn't anything to kind of follow up and make sure states are using the money appropriately. Basically, there's no way to take these waivers away. Once they're put in place, a state official could be using it on hookers and blow or you know, prostitutes and cocaine. I think he may have written because he's proper that way. And there's nothing the federal government can do. And so I guess with that in mind, is given how broad these waivers are and how much latitude they give to the states, how can conservatives really be pissed about this still? 
It's really unclear the extent of this. And one of the things, you know, when senators say, oh, we need more time before we take a vote. Well, if it's like if it's a Medicaid cut or some other cut, you know, you can see CBO can score that. Like, here's how much money you would have. Here's how much money you you know currently would get if you do this. This is just leaves it wide open. It was one of the funnier parts reading the bill because it's tucked near the end. It doesn't look like anything. It's like in, you know, section two, whatever, paragraph B, clause A, one, it says strike parts A through D, blah, blah, blah. Well, parts A through D are all of the requirements for what you need to do in order to get a waiver. So, yeah. you know, you have to have, as George was saying, you have to have comprehensive coverage. You have to reduce costs. You have to make sure you cover as many people as would be covered under Obamacare, and you can't increase the federal deficit. All it says now is that you can't increase the federal deficit. And not only does it say that, in Obamacare, it says the secretary may grant a request only if these requirements are met. Now it would say the secretary shall grant a request for these waivers unless it doesn't increase the deficit. And on top of that, there's also the creation of a $2 billion fund to help states you know, send in their applications and get them ready. It's really unclear how broad this goes. You could have, you know, states hoovering up their taxpayer money to, you know, hookers and blow or stadiums or filling budget holes. It seems like it's something that requires a lot of analysis. After Mike Lee's post came out this weekend, someone said, so you want states to opt out, but what about these enhanced 1332 state innovation waivers? And then his spokesperson said they want community rating gone. So I don't know why this isn't good enough for him since it seems to be like uh, the secretary was required to give you all the money you would get in tax credits for you to do literally anything with. So just a quick refresher. Community rating is the uh, rule that says you can't charge people with pre-existing conditions more for their coverage. It's really murky right now how much leeway a creative state might have under under this regime. But the two things it doesn't let you do is get rid of community rating or get rid of the rules that say that insurers have to cover people with pre-existing conditions. Leaving those two rules in place while kind of allowing them to opt out of everything else could create some funkiness in the insurance market. And I guess to some extent, you know, now I'm thinking about it, if you're Mike Lee, there's probably a part of you that is just like, for Christ's sakes, you're allowing states to do literally whatever they want, except for you're keeping these two rules around just for the sake of political cover when it doesn't really make much sense anymore. So I can see how if you're a principal conservative, it might make you a little infuriated. So Jim, I want to talk about the the latest potential outrage in the Senate bill. They're talking about adding a provision that if you don't have insurance, you might have to wait six months to buy it. So what's going on here? Yeah. So there's nothing in the Senate bill when it came out that serve the same purpose as the individual mandate, which they're trying to get rid of. So there is nothing in there, even though the bill still requires that people with pre-existing conditions must be offered coverage, there was nothing in there to ensure that enough young and healthy people sign up for insurance to balance out the risk pool and prevent the insurance system from just cascading into this series of higher and higher costs. So they're now adding a provision. Jordan, do you want to explain that? They're adding this, it's getting shorthanded as like the six-month lockout period, right? So Republicans have always been really big on what are known as like continuous coverage provisions. And and the idea is that they're not going to make you buy insurance coverage, but you're only going to be protected if you maintain it so that you can't just buy insurance whenever, you know, you get sick. And so the latest idea seems to be that if you don't have insurance coverage, if if you do not have, if you do not have a health plan... Uh, the next time you go to buy one, if you, you're going to have to wait six months for it to take effect. 
So there's going to be this six-month lockout period where you can't get insurance. This is supposedly meant to incentivize people to buy insurance and maintain it. Don't have a gap in your coverage or you're going to be locked out of the market for six months. But some people are freaking out about this because it sounds like, well, holy shit, instead of telling me I have to buy insurance, you're telling me I can't buy insurance. I think it's not clear exactly how frightening this is. And it sort of depends on specifically how it's written. Because on the one hand, this actually could just sort of be a version of Obamacare's open enrollment period. Right now, there are actually all sorts of restrictions in Obamacare. So you you know you have to buy uh, insurance during open enrollment, or you have to qualify for a special enrollment period, which basically means if you lose your job and lose your coverage, you can buy insurance later in the year, but otherwise you're locked out. This sounds like a version of that. But the one way it could potentially be much, much worse is if they say this six-month lockout applies even if you try to buy coverage during the open enrollment period. So basically, this would say that if you ever have any gap at any time, even if we get back to the open enrollment, you're still going to have this six-month lockout. That is much more severe than what exists currently. Coming back to the politics of it, regardless of specifically how it's written and how severe it turns out to be, it seems like they've written something that will be less popular and harder to market even than the individual mandate. Well, that's sort of the silliness of this whole debate because the individual mandate, they have to get rid of that because they've been reeling against that for seven years. And it is, you know, regardless of the merits, it's not a very popular thing to have to pay a tax penalty if you don't buy a certain product. So it's the big political winners getting rid of that. You know, Democrats didn't put that in the bill just because they wanted to punish people. They put it in there for a specific policy reason. So now without the individual mandate, they're having to come up with something else. Anything where you're trying to get people who do not want to buy insurance, you're trying to apply a stick approach and get them to buy insurance, that's not going to be a popular provision, but you sort of have to do it in order to keep premiums down for the whole pool. So they've come up with this. The House bill, their idea was the penalty if you didn't maintain continuous coverage and you wanted to buy it was that there would be a 30% surcharge on your premiums. And that wouldn't work very well because then if you are just trying to buy insurance when you get sick, you'd be like, okay, fine, whatever, it's 30% more, but I can still buy it right now. This one I'm wondering, if you were actually locked out and you can't buy it, that might serve as a better incentive, which also, you know, the flip side of that is probably the better incentive probably could be more unpopular because it's a little more scary. So I'm, I'm just wondering how that will be scored. It may score a little better. I will say right now, it's definitely going to be a more effective provision than what the House came up with. The House's idea was kind of comically badly designed. It was so bad that actually the CBO said it would reduce the number of people insured. Rather than encouraging more people to get insurance, having that surcharge would just convince young people to hold off. The bill would have been better off without it, which kind of makes me wonder if for CBO scoring purposes, they could have gotten away with not having one of these things in there and just sort of hoped that other aspects of the bill would have, quote, like stabilized the market somehow, like the reinsurance fund. Right. But that's sort of doing a lot of guesswork about the mysteries of, of CBO forecasts. Some of the conservative criticism of CBO is that they weight the mandate very heavily and that maybe the mandate doesn't have quite the uh, the power that CBO says it does. So maybe they're finding that uh, this continuous coverage provision will have that same effect uh, and then lowering the number of uninsured in their CBO score. Like they could, CBO could find this having a much more uh, powerful effect. Yeah, that's actually a possibility. That might balance out the terrible PR. I think it's time for us to turn to our final segment which we like to call, Is This Shit Really Happening?, where Jim and I will each place a wager on whether or not we think Trump Care will actually be signed into law. I still think it's going to happen. I still think this will be signed into law. However, I am downgrading it, my wager. Last episode, I said I would bet my brand new mattress, um, which had just been delivered. 
um, and which I very much liked. I'm still bedding my mattress. The reason it's downgraded is because I recently found a bed bug in my apartment. It's not clear we have an all-out infestation, but there was one that we managed to trap in a jar. So the person on the other side of this wager, that's what you have to know about this bed. Just telling you. I will still bet that the bill uh, goes through. I also am a little less comfortable about it just because the sort of jockeying for position among the holdouts has been a little stronger than I expected. I would bet the accumulation of all the free come with purchase Apple earbuds that I've collected over the years, which are all terrible and I never use them. I don't want them yet. I can't throw them away. So I'm willing How to bet How many do you them. have? I don't know, like four or five. So I will give all of those away. So just a little bit of housekeeping. Um, the CBO score is supposed to come out later this afternoon or possibly on Tuesday. If it does, uh, we'll probably do a bonus episode where we just go over all the dirty, nasty numbers in that document and see what, what what the CBO thinks the Senate bill will do. But for now, I think that's the end of today's episode of the Trump Care Tracker. If you have any questions or comments, things you want to share, or pour your heart out to us, uh, please email us at trumpcaretracker at slate.com. Again, trumpcaretracker at slate.com. And if you like the show, please, please, please leave us a review at the iTunes store. We love reviews. For now, I'm Jordan Weissman. Jim, it's been hella fun chatting. Yeah. Good times as always. Excited for that CBO score. Talk to you soon. Okay. Bye.